0: Give and take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Dr. Robert Jones. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently. The End of White Christian America. He writes a regular monthly column for The Atlantic on politics and culture and appears regularly in a Faith by Numbers segment on Interfaith Voices, nation's leading religion news magazine on public radio. He is frequently featured in major national media such as CNN, NPR, The New York Times, The Washington Post, among other places. He's also the CEO of The Public Religion Research Institutes. He's an incredibly interesting guy, and we had a lot to talk about. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I give you Robert Jones. Robert, welcome to the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: So my friend, Mark Oppenheimer, who's a Jewish journalist and a really interesting guy, he told me the story around Christmas time. He was going to a Hanukkah party in New York City, and his daughter thought that Christians just... Grew Christmas trees every year. (laughs) And because she didn't realize, like, she was like, why are all these trees on these people's car? And he said, well, those are Christians and they're getting the Christmas tree. Oh, my gosh. And then she started going, there's a Christian. There's a Christian. And... He said to her, "They're everywhere, sweetie, but you've written a book that says maybe they're not everywhere." The end of white Christian America—they're not necessarily everywhere anymore, right?
1: Well, it's funny. I mean, my wife is Jewish, and she grew up in Chicago, um, and so you know, where she, up in, in Evanston, and where she grew up, I mean, you know, Jews made up a sizable proportion of the population, and you know, she had a similar experience that it wasn't until her twenties or thirties that she realized, oh. We're 1.7 percent of the population once you get outside of, you know, big urban uh, urban areas. And, you know, but I, I do think what we're seeing in the country today is this uh, real shift where, you know, for the longest time, the kind of assumption or the stereotype of, you know, what is the core of American culture was a white Anglo-Saxon and Protestant Culture, right? Not even you know Christian, generally speaking, but Protestant Christian, um, you know, and that that's actually shifting um, in the country today. And and in fact, you know, um, I mean, one of the reasons why I kind of took a step back to try to write, you know, this book, um, the end of white Christian America, was um, that. I realized we had crossed this tipping point that even if you took all Christians together, like Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, you know, everyone, non-denominational, that just in the last decade, we've gone from being a majority Christian nation uh, to a minority uh, white Christian nation. And that that was something nobody was really talking about, even though, you know, we had kind of reached this tipping point.
0: Yeah. And and when you say that, you're not You're saying that basically this is mostly Protestants, too. You're thinking we were like a Protestant Christian nation. It's funny, right? Gorsuch— is the first Protestant we've had on the Supreme Court in a while. It's almost like we need affirmative action. It's all Catholic (laughs) and Jews right now.
1: No, that's right. I mean, it's really quite remarkable that, you know, we've gone from like the early 20th century where, you know, when Brandeis was appointed, uh, you know, as kind of a Jewish seat on the Supreme Court, that since that time there has been kind of a tradition of thinking about, or the way it used to be thought about is, okay, well, we'll kind of hold a seat. For someone Jewish as a kind of nod to diversity. Um, but you're right now, it's it's uh, it's all Catholics and Jews on this on Supreme Court. There hasn't been a, a Protestant since 2010 um, on the U.S. Supreme Court. I think that's just a sign of, you know, how things are really shifting um, in the country.
0: You've written also a piece that I thought, uh, I've actually, a friend and I, who is a, another pastor, do a kind of podcast about whatever we're thinking about. We actually did a whole podcast about this article, The Collapse of American Identity. And it, when you open it, you say that that G.K. Chesterton said that America was like the nation with the soul of a church, but you weren't talking, you were saying, like, you, you point out that Chesterton is not so much talking about uh, a particular revealed religious soul sort of identity, but actually the civic religion and a consensus around ideals that, that a diverse society shares. And you're saying that this Chesterton, when he if he were, could go back forward in time, he probably would not say this now.
1: <laughs> I think he'd be less optimistic uh, for sure. I mean, what what's striking about him, you know, and also Alexei de Tocqueville, who came at the late 19th century and visited America, Chesterton came early 20th century. And part of what was going on is um, there were people, you know, these kind of thinkers and public intellectuals from Europe coming over to the U.S. to try to figure out how. This American experiment in democracy was working because in Europe, you know, there was still the sense that if you're not ethnically German and you or you know, and you're in Germany, you're, ne- you're always going to be a second class citizen. If you're not ethnically French in France, you were always going to be a second class citizen. And that kind of reliance on um, ethnicity um, wasn't as strong in, in the U.S. context as so they were mostly coming over to figure this is a great quote, you know, that Chesterton uh talked about the American experiment as an attempt to create a home, quote, a home out of vagabonds and a nation out of exiles, um, you know, which echoes a lot of, you know, the Statue of Liberty, give us your tired, you're hungry, you know, and that sense of making a nation out of this uh, very disparate stew of, um, of immigrants um, to the country. Um, But I think today, you know, I think in some ways we're, we, we're back to some of this tribalism, that they were seeing in Europe, uh, you know, 100 years ago, uh, but I think is kind of making a little bit of a resurgence uh, today. So that was part of what I was trying to tackle in this piece and talking about the, you know, our unraveling or the collapse of of American identity.
0: And how much of that, you know, it's interesting that you use that word exile because it feels to me like... Everyone feels like an exile in America these days. Like, if you're a gun rights person, you feel like the anti gun people are taking over. If you want gun control, you feel like the NRA runs everything. If you're a conservative, we're going socialist. If you're a liberal, it's a fascist right wing takeover. You know, it's a, it seems like everybody feels like an exile. I, I, I mean, how much of the collapse of a sort of shared uh, civic religious cultural identity contributes to that you think
1: well i i think it's it's a partly that collapse of of that shared identity but but i think part of what's eroded it um is partisanship kind of polar polarization along party lines that is also now becoming associated with uh lines along race and religion so republicans are becoming increasingly white and christian democrats are becoming Ah, uh, decreasingly uh, white and Christian. So, like today, uh, for example, only 29 percent of Democrats identify as white and Christian of any kind, uh, but three quarters of Republicans identify as white and Christian. So, in addition to the ideological and political lines, we have these kind of overlays of race and religion that I think are really turbocharging the sense of of um, re- of partisan identity. Um, that become really, I mean, the best word, you know, uh, I use it a couple times in the piece is uh, they become tribal identities, really, that people stop thinking about, but they just become very much embedded um, in our, uh, you know, DNA, even. Um, there's one great uh, quote uh, that I, or uh, a great survey uh, from Stanford in the 1960s, where they asked Americans how upset they would be if they had a son or a daughter who married someone of the opposite political party. Uh, and back in 1960, only 5% of Democrats and 6% of Republicans said they'd be very upset about this. That question got asked again in 2010 in the, in the middle of the, uh, the Obama administration, and it had jumped to half of Republicans and a third of Democrats uh, saying that uh, they'd be very upset. So it's it's become, you know, partisanship used to be this thing we disagreed you know, about or we would take with us to the ballot box, and increasingly today the set of partisan tribal identities are something that we're taking to bed with
0: us. Yeah. And yeah. And do you find it? It's interesting, right? Like people like Greg Gutfeld and S.E. Cup, who are conservatives and not religious, they actually are defending religion. And then you see people that are people of faith on more liberal networks. And it's like they're afraid to talk about it. It it, it, it just it almost is like you become the pro or anti-religion party
1: you know there's there's certainly some of that going on. I mean, the one thing that complicates that picture a little bit and it's one of the reasons why I talk about race and religion together usually is that you know we got to remember that African Americans right are one of the most religious constituencies in the country that rival the you know uh religious attendance levels of white evangelicals for example. Um Latino Catholics are also very, very highly religious, um, that that actually are, are more likely than white Catholics to attend mass and uh and to pray daily, those kinds of things. And yet they vote uh, you know, ninety percent of African Americans are voting for Democrats, and three quarters of Latino Catholics are voting for Democrats. What is the real dividing line, and this is why I actually think it's more troubling, is that it's not just a kind of religious secular divide. Um I think we were talking about that. Maybe a decade ago, that seemed to be the way the conversation was going. But I think it's evolved so that it's actually a racial and relig- kind of race and religion uh, divide more than it is a religion, secular divide today.
0: Yeah. And you point out that now this is astounding. Uh, these are the kind of statistics that you're, you guys at PR. Or I are great at tracking this down. It's a granular level sort of stuff. And you say that you, you point out to one poll that says 66% of Democrats compared with only 35% of Republicans said the mixing of cultures and values from around the world was extremely or very important to American identity. And then similarly, 64% of Republicans compared to 30% of Democrats saw a culture grounded in Christian religious beliefs as extremely or very important. That's astounding.
1: Oh, I agree. I mean, when I saw those numbers, I, I I had to like double check to make sure I was looking at them right, you know, that and, and because the underlying question is what kind of culture is important for a shared American identity, right? That's the underlying question. And that Democrats and Republicans today have essentially mutually exclusive different answers to that question. It's hard to know, you know, if one group says, uh, oh, it's the mixing of cultures and values, and the other one says, no, 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 it's a kind of um, you know one of one and I think that's the other thing. one party has become more the party of that's promoting pluralism uh the other one is kind of conserving a kind of cultural monism you know that's founded in a Protestant Christian identity um again, those it's too hard to find like a point of compromise between those two different worldviews
0: yeah, it, you know there's this old line you know, as it uh Patrick Moynihan said you know you're entitled to your own opinions not your own facts. Now it's beyond your own fact. It's your own world, yeah. right? I mean, the the interpreter you also say that most Democrats think that minorities and women and transgender folks, Muslims face a lot of discrimination. It almost as many Republicans think that Christians are more discriminated against than any of those groups.
1: Yeah. You know, that's a, I, it was kind of a reinforcing point of just how people are viewed. It really is. I do think that, I mean, one of the big picture things I'm arguing is that we may be seeing a complete realignment of our political parties away from kind of more traditional liberal to conservative polls and more along the lines of um, uh, kind of positive or acceptance of pluralism and a rejection of pluralism. Uh, and that that may be become the defining trait really between the two uh, political parties that we have today.
0: Hey, it's interesting. I remember when Trump announced in his campaign that he was contemplating the, the well, he originally called it the Muslim ban. Your PRI poll came out days before that that said actually across the board, something like 56% of Americans or something thought that Islam was incompatible with the American democratic way of life. And then, you know, even when you cross, when every Protestant, every Christian group you cite thought that at least 50% or more across racial lines, across denominations. And then I think that, you, you point out that 43 percent of Democrats even agreed with that. So do you think Trump there was just like, do you think he cribbed your notes and was like, all right, <laughs> Americans really believe this. Well, I, I'm going to go with this. Here's
1: what's tricky about about that number. And and uh, is that certainly that's right. You know, we have sort of, you know, solid majorities of Americans across the board saying that Islam is incompatible with American values and way of life. Uh, but we, we had a, a similar question um, uh, actually on the same poll that showed that asked, Do you think um, Muslims are an important part of the U.S. religious community? And we have actually about the same numbers of people saying yes to that question. So it's kind of a weird, complex space. And then when we get to policy issues, um, we, we still have a majority of people opposing Trump's. Uh, Muslim ban, a majority of people opposing the building of the wall, uh, majority of people um, supporting the U.S. accepting more refugees from Syria. Now these are not huge majorities; they're in the fifties. Um, uh, on you know, basically opposing Trump's position on there, but the, but again, the partisan divides are huge. Like you know super majorities of republicans are with him and super majorities of democrats are uh, opposed oppose those policies
0: you know it's interesting i mean trump is in my lifetime and and this isn't like a, a partisan or or prescriptive this is just like descriptive I, he is the most secular president I can remember i mean we, I, in my lifetime there's you know like i can't remember a a, a a president that was just less religious in identity and imagination I mean when the best thing you've got is two Corinthians the spirit liberty like mean, that kind of and yet it seems like evangelicals that doesn't bother them for some reason or there's is it because he's like a Cyrus figure like the great Persian emperor that's gonna going take the 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 israelites who perceived who were in exile are are evangelicals seeing themselves as like exiles in the old testament that the pagan ruler will sort of bring back and let's say merry christmas again
1: yeah you know i mean certainly what we heard from trump right was a very clear message that uh, that was linked to his make america great again theme his message for christians was um you we heard this from early on the iowa caucuses when he was speaking to evangelical audience his message was Look, I know you're in decline. I know you feel like you're losing in the American culture wars, and uh, if you elect me president, uh, when we say when I say "Make America Great Again," I, I what I mean by that is I'm going to restore power to the Christian churches um, in this country. I mean, he very explicitly said that um, in the uh, in his appeal, um, and so he talked about. Um, the Johnson Amendment, right, this kind of uh, allowing pastors to endorse political candidates from the pulpit was one symbolic thing he said he was going to do. Um, but, but here's the important thing, I think, to me, is that I, I don't really think there it was a, a you know, the, the, I would say it this way, the evidence points to a much simpler explanation for why uh, white evangelicals voted for Trump. And the answer is because he was the Republican candidate for president. Um, and I think all of the theology that got bandied around, you know, there were so many different theories of like why, you know, from Franklin Graham saying, and he sent Franklin Graham essentially said, this is so screwed up and he still won. It must be God, right? This kind of weird somersault uh, of theology. And then there was other ones. Yes. The sort of secular King who's going to set things right. Even though he himself doesn't fit, isn't a godly man himself, like that kind of rhetoric. But, at the end of the day, I think you know the best evidence is just this that since Reagan, white evangelical Protestants have voted about eight and ten for Republican candidates, no matter who they were. And so, if we think back about how different the last slate of Republican candidates have been, and white evangelicals have supported them all at roughly the same levels, right? So John McCain, who called the the far right, uh, the Christian right agents of intolerance, and still got seventy five percent of white evangelical votes. Mitt Romney, a Mormon, for whom many evangelicals had big theological problems uh, with his his theology and the Mormon Church, still got you know nearly eight and ten votes. George W. Bush was probably the best candidate who like really had a uh, you know resume and came out of that uh, world, uh, and still got about 78% of their votes. Donald Trump got 81%. He actually had a little bit of a high watermark uh, here in, in supporting uh, in, in terms of white evangelical support. But I think it was because uh, what he, uh, his message um, wasn't, I'm one of you. I, I think he didn't try that hard to say he was one of them. I thought he, I think he thought that was kind of a futile argument, but he did say, uh, I understand that you're upset about your kind of loss of power in the, in the wider culture And if you elect me, just like I'm going to bring jobs back, uh, you know, to the Midwest, I'm going to bring power back to the Christian churches, I think. And then he was the Republican candidate for president. I think it's pretty as simple as that.
0: So he can fairly say, I got the most white evangelical support of the candidates.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he can. I mean, 81 percent. It's a high watermark.
0: So your technical academic scholarly analysis with all the PRI powers is, evangelicals are partisan republicans <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it, all the theories can be boiled down to that i think
1: that's right and 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 frankly i think that what happens in the partisan space is that um theology um you know i say this is someone who cares a lot about theology and 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 integrity of uh you know theological thinking but but you know it looks like uh from the way the data works that uh It looks like theology essentially becomes backfill, right, for a position that people already have decided on independent, mostly partisan uh, means. Uh, And then so we fill in and justify that decision that was made on on another basis with a kind of theological view that kind of shores it up.
0: So it's like uh, Jeff Goldblum's character—I forget which character—is in, in *The Big Chill*. Says we can get a human being can get through a day without food or, or sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization. So people <laughs> just can just rationalize the <laughs> theological and spiritual yeah. principles and just vote partisan at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. Well,
1: I'll tell you, give me give you one data point too. That uh, so in twenty eleven, we asked um, Americans um, a, a, essentially a question about uh, character and how much character mattered in a political candidate. And so the question said. Um, you know, do you think that a political candidate who commits an immoral act in his personal life can nonetheless behave morally and fulfill their duties in their public life as an elected official? Um, in two thousand eleven, white evangelical Protestants were the group who had the most problem with that, who were least likely to say that's possible. Right? Only about three in ten white evangelical Protestants said that this was possible. Right? And so, in other words, character matters, right? It ble- if you bad character in personal life bleeds over into your public life. Uh, we asked this question again in the context of the last election in 2016, and evangelicals went from being the least likely group to say this was possible to the most likely group to say this was possible. <laughs> uh, they went to 72 percent, from 30 percent to 72 percent, saying that it was now possible for an elected official to commits an immoral act in their personal life to still behave morally in their public life.
0: That's astounding.
1: It, it was astounding. It's another one of those numbers where I, I got the we got the results back and I had them analyzed four or five times just to make sure, like there was no kind of weird quirk in the data. But it, it's right, and and it, it's it really is. You know, it's an adjustment, right? Uh, and I actually wrote a piece for Time Magazine saying that essentially what this does is it inverts, um, it completely stands evangelical political ethics on its head, right from. I think the whole values voters motif was about, okay, look, we have a set of principles. We're going to stand behind those principles and we're going to let the chips fall where they may. Uh, And this actually turns it into a more of a utilitarian ends justify the means uh, kind of political ethic, right? Where we have an end that we know we have to adhere to uh, because this is the Republican nominee. And so now we're going to kind of reconstruct our ethical moral reasoning to kind of fit, you know, fit the end that we've already determined we need.
0: So you think if the GOP... Nominee was Ozzy Osbourne. They'd figure <laughs> out a way. They're, they'd figure out a way. They'd start. They'd say, "We're not burning those albums anymore." <laughs> you know, I think it'd be tough. I mean, I really do. I, I,
1: you know, I think about. We saw this with Mitt Romney, right? With with before Mitt Romney became the nominee, um, what happened was there was a kind of anybody but Romney meeting among uh, kind of prominent white evangelical leaders, uh, and they came out backing Rick Santorum, right? So, but it didn't matter because. Uh, when he got the nominee, um, Romney's approval rating among white evangelicals went from the 30s to the 60s in a month, right? Because he was the Republican nominee.
0: So people are, are ideal, and this happened right in this primary. People are, were idealists in the primary. People's most yeah. faithful church going evangelicals supported people like Rubio or a Ted Cruz or John Kasich. Case- but then once the primaries are over, you get behind the winner.
1: Well, I mean, yes, you get behind the winner, but, like, let's remember that um, Super Tuesday, right, was where all the southern states were. It's also sometimes called the SEC primary at the Southeastern Conference after the football conference uh, <laughs> primaries. Was, was was heavy, right, all along the southern seaboard. That was supposed to be Ted Cruz's day, um, and Trump, like, whipped him all the way across the south. Uh, he went from Mississippi to Michigan uh, at the end of March. Uh, and largely because of white evangelical support, even then in the primaries.
0: Do you think, I mean, I remember seeing a focus group, I forget what cable news thing it was before the South Carolina primary and they had all these Baptists, other Baptists, and they said, how many of you think Trump's going to be the nominee? And they all raised their hand. How many of you are going to vote for Trump? And no one raised their hand. Is that because they didn't want to go to church and be the person <laughs> on the focus group that said they were going to vote for Trump. Yeah. But I bet you a lot of people with when when those curtains closed. Their opinion changed.
1: Uh, You know that's certainly uh, possible, especially when you're talking about you know having someone who can't be anonymous on national television. Right? Uh, There's certainly uh, some of that going on. But but I I do think that South Carolina primary was important because um, the South Carolina primary was the first one that was heavily white evangelical. Seventy-five percent of GOP primary voters in South Carolina are white evangelical Protestants. You cannot win South Carolina without winning a majority of 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 evangelical votes and trump handily won uh south carolina
0: you know i notice in in, as you know white protestants uh, of all stripes as the as their numbers decrease a bit certainly mainline probably a little quicker than evangelicals but but there's there's the decrease across the board i noticed like a couple reactions ross doth at the bad religion kind of book saying hey we've lost this public theology that had some Remnants of orthodoxy, it makes for fringe fundamentalism and flaky spiritualities, both right and left, and we need that back. But then you've got people like Rod Dreher and the Benedict Option, and you have a lot of my friends who are, would, would consider themselves kind of progressive evangelicals who are embracing anabaptism uh, or neo-anabaptism, uh, You know, this sort of, hey, maybe the countercultural radical reformation at right. I mean, are those the two main reactions? Are there others? I mean, and, and do you see these reactions out there? What do you make? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, they're they're still, I would say, the old guard, right? Jerry Falwell Jr., Franklin Graham, James Dobson, all who showed up. Uh, you know, we hadn't seen them in a while, but showed up in the Trump campaign. Um, you know, and and they're 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 not so much conceding the ground. I mean, they really are. We're going to take it back. Is really their stance. Uh, I don't think there's. Uh, very much chance of that but I, but that's the you know that's the stance there but you have people at Russell Moore at the Southern Baptist Convention um, who has written about you know needing to kind of think about what does it mean to be a church out of out of power um, and all of them are drawing in many ways right on Stanley Hauerwas's work um you know back in the 80s that that book resident aliens that that Hauerwas, uh, you know, penned really mostly for the mainline Protestant churches at the time when they were kind of first experiencing their decline, um, I think has um, really set the, or, or made a kind of map or a chart of the pathways that are possible uh, there. We're seeing kind of Dreyer and others kind of picking up on that um, at more recently. The real, the real question, though, is um, that, that I think always some of these uh, things founder on is whether or not, um, can you let go of power? I think is the real question, right? So, for Russell Moore, um, if that's the path you think you want to take, if the if the path is about like church faithfulness, setting an example, um, can you let go then of political power, or does that sneak back in uh, in in some way? And I, I think that's still the open you know, question, like how much um, of that kind of traditional political influence that comes through power, really, um, how much is that still in play with some of these options on the table? Does it just look like a kind of, um, you know, retreat to the monastery uh, that still has a political lobbyist in Washington? Um, Or is it really something fundamentally, you know, different that's going to, you know, really change uh, the playbook?
0: Someone came up to Harawas after he wrote that book and said, it's really interesting that you use this phrase from Philippians, Colony of Heaven. But why wouldn't you have used 1 Peter? Because that's really the book that really talks about existing as a minority. Harawas is like, well, it's because we liberals just don't know the Bible that well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So
0: who And you come from a, a Baptist sort of evangelical tradition, right? Who do you see today that's doing public theology in, you know, you think about people like Reinhold Niebuhr, you know, who who are just massive cultural influences. We just—it seems like we don't have much like that at all. But, I mean, who who do you see as leading lights in public theology? They're actually maybe offering— some ways forward or offering something less bleak or, or or figuring out ways to use language of faith, seeking understanding to sort of build bridges as opposed to silos and and, and ghettos intellectually?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think there's a bunch of that happening. It's just that, you know, when I mean, one of the things I did with the book is I went back and looked, um, uh, for example, at Time magazine covers from the middle of the 20th century, you know, and they are, I mean, they've got Reinhold Niebuhr, there's like all kinds of ministers and stuff, you know, making the Time 100, Most Influential People, making the cover of the magazine, Billy Graham, others. um, I kind of think we're past that moment in time where um, I don't really think we're at a moment where a pastor or a seminary professor is probably going to wield that kind of influence um, by themselves. Uh, It it feels a little anachronistic, I think, to me. I think what we're seeing more of is, uh, and I'm all for, you know, the theological ferment. I think that's it's good, good and healthy. So, the debate that Dreyer's book has uh, come up, Russell Moore's book, I think, also is kind of pushing the Southern Baptist Convention to think a little differently about their traditional engagement in, into politics. Uh, the late David Quo's uh, book, um, you know, was also calling on evangelicals in particular to maybe take a, a deep breath or a sabbatical, even from politics, to rethink. Um, things, um, you know, and there's a whole bunch of other, you know, Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and Shane Claiborne and, and others who were, you know, um, thinking kind of trying to put together some other, some other options or just kind of getting people to think outside the box a little bit. I think all of that's really important because I, I think we're at a moment where, um, you know, we, we are at a, at the end of an era. Um, and it's unclear. Like I think what's most clear is that the sun has set. Right on this previous year. I think it's less clear like what's dawning on the other on the other side.
0: It's interesting too. I think of people that are really big, two big voices, and they're not saying the same thing, but they both have Joe Osteen, right, who is sort of a uh s- smiley, uh happy go lucky version of Norman Vincent Peel or something, right? Power mm, positive yeah. thinking. You know and Rob Bell, who I had him on the podcast a few weeks ago, and I, w- I just was really moved by him. He's a great communicator, very genuine person. And I listened to a few of p- his podcasts recently. He's really calling people out of a sort of tribalistic, uh, consumeristic rat race. It, you know, he, he did this sermon called The Sign of Jonah, which I thought was incredibly powerful about, you know, refusing the temptation to, of signs and refusing the, the sort of consumer and rat race kind of thing. But both of them are speaking personally. To to people, they're not speaking so much to the public, um, but to the personal. Now, you could argue that there are public implications for both of their messages, and maybe a little more so with Rob Bell than with Joe Osteen. But yeah. they're both still largely operating out of the personal, uh, yeah, not necessarily the private, but the personal.
1: Right. No, I mean you're right. I mean, so you know, where does this stuff take hold? Um, it's when it makes it into liturgy, into hymns. Uh, into Sunday school material, I mean, you know, that's when, you know, sort of something new is happening. So the way that, like Methodism, for example, you know, began to uh, bring like a more emotive way of thinking about being Christian into the hymns, right? You had these kind of hymns that talked about emotional um, kind of connections uh, and mysticism in a way. Um, So I think, you know, are we going to see a turn, for example, in the Baptist Sunday school boards? Literature that begins to really, implement some of like what Russell Moore is talking about so that adult Sunday school classes across and youth Sunday school classes right across the country are really going to wrestle with some of these questions where it becomes a live question uh, for them. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think these are sort of test balloons we're seeing. And it's still pretty early because I, you know, the, the, for evangelicals, especially it's only been the last decade, there's been a clear documentable decline in both demographics and cultural power so that's not that long really and in these in the way these things go uh so you know it's it's now ten straight years. the Southern Baptist Convention, for example, the largest evangelical um denomination has posted uh you know ten years of straight membership declines um uh and negative growth rates uh and but it takes a while for that stuff to one for people to come to terms with it, believe it's really real and then to start thinking about what the implications of it are i think we're just at that at that point but i think you're right that what we're seeing is books uh speakers Um, it's, it's in the ether in that way, right? People who, it's almost like a a network, an informal book club of people who are trying to wrestle with these, uh, kinds of ideas. But I I think it hasn't quite made it all the way down into the, into the pews.
0: Now, do you think I've read some literature about within the nuns, which are the, you know, the non-religious identified, you know, they're not participating in traditional institutions. I've read within that subset, there's a group of duns that still would identify uh religiously as Christian have some sense of personal spirituality, but they're just uh not going to affiliate regularly with traditional institutions. They might go to services here or there but do do you think that makes the the influence of the of the of the churches more diffuse too that, the fact that like you're more likely to be sort of an independent thinker if you're not showing up to 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 the team's meetings so regularly?
1: yeah well, it's it's tricky. I mean, the first thing I will say, and you know any, anyone in the social sciences should say this, is that we are also just beginning to really understand who that group of religiously unaffiliated are as they've really mushroomed over the last couple of decades. You know it's not that long ago, you go back to the 1990s, um, only six percent of Americans claimed no religious affiliation as recently as the 1990s, and that number today is 23 percent. All right, so it's it's you know it's quadrupled um, just since the nineteen nineties. Um, so it's something again, it's still kind of a new phenomenon. Um, and we're also looking today at young people. The rates of uh, disaffiliation among young people, uh, are people being unaffiliated, is is now approaching forty percent among younger people that under the age of thirty. Um, so you know, and there clearly are distinct um, groups in there. We've typically thought of them in three buckets. One of them is uh, the kind of atheist, agnostic. Group that is like kind of a rejectionist group, like they have rejected organized religion in a pretty strong way. They tend to read Dawkins and Hitchens, and you know, there's that that kind of group. They also tend to be white male and overeducated. Um, and then there's a group. Uh, At what
0: point are you overeducated? Like, is it the second <laughs> PhD, or what point are you like uh,
1: like postgraduate degrees? You know, like, <laughs> like beyond college. Um, you know, uh, and and then there's the middle group that is. They're, I think, the most interesting because, or at least um, because they haven't exactly rejected religion in any hardcore way. You, They tend to pray. Uh, you know, they believe in God generally. They just have not, have not affiliated and don't really want to affiliate. Mostly they just say it's irrelevant to my life. They just don't see the relevance uh, at all. So it's not that they're repulsed by it. It's just that they're not attracted to it either. And that's a pretty interesting group. And then the third group in there is a, uh, is a group that's um, more likely to be uh, minority uh, younger um, and kind of lower socio socioeconomic status. And they have pretty traditional beliefs, but just aren't connected uh, to institutions. Um, so I think we're still kind of figuring out what the mix is there and what it means uh, for the future. Uh, you know, and for churches, what does it mean to, you know, those are clearly three different strategies of trying to connect with, Three very different groups of people that we all lump together into this term unaffiliated.
0: And I've read some research of late that that actually for white people that not going, not being part of a religious community has big impacts like on income, on outlook on the world. I mean, it's I mean, do you find that data compelling?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, you know, if if you're if you're thinking about this not just from the health of churches, but for the health of like a democratic society, it's really important. um, I talk about this at the end of the book to say, look, you know, um, even if you don't care about the health of churches, but you care about the health of a democratic society, churches have played a really important role in equipping people. Uh, you know, to have civic skills that they then take into other areas. And I mean, we've always seen that um, church attendance is highly correlated to rates of voting uh, behavior. People who attend church are much more likely to vote. They're also much more likely to be involved in other kinds of civic organizations from the Elks Club to the Rotary Club to PTA, um, those kinds. of So it tends to come as a package. And so I do think one of the one of the questions for us is as church attendance rates are falling and disaffiliation rates are rising, um, that has implications for democratic practices, right? Because we may end up with people who've never sat in a committee meeting before. They don't know how to run a meeting. Um, I mean, one quick aside here, I, I was just kind of looking at, at, you know, this Robert's rules of order, right? Which is kind of the way uh, the parliamentary guide you know, is used from the Senate on, on down. It was actually written by someone who attended a church meeting uh, so James Roberts, who, who wrote the, who wrote Robert's rules, attended a church meeting that ended up in a huge fight uh, but, <laughs> because nobody, everybody was talking over each other. Nobody knew like when we could vote on something. When we, and he actually went back home and said, okay, I'm not going back to another church committee meeting until I sort of sort out a procedure that everybody will agree to, you know, and that's now become kind of part of our kind of, you know, social capital in the country is a way of fairly running a meeting, but that came out of a church, you know, a church meeting. Uh and so if we've lost that, um, where's that gonna come from? Where are those civic skills gonna come from in the future?
0: As someone who is is immersed in sort of Religious and political, cultural research and data. What is the the statistic lately? The the piece of data that really keeps you up at night? you are like, oh my gosh, this is that good. And what's the piece that's hey, you know, that's uh, it might be morning morning in America someday. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I do think it's it's uh, you know any number of of, of uh, stats that just show the. The ways in which we are divided by these tribal identities, you know, and it it is mostly around race and culture. It's is much less actually about liberal versus conservative than it is about race and culture. So, you know, everything from. What do we think about, um, you know, the uh, killing of unarmed black men by police, for example? Like the white and black differences in opinion on that are just on opposite sides of the spectrum, you know. Um, and, and, you know, for your audience, it, you know, if you take your average white person and you add Christian identity, they actually move further away from their black brothers and sisters and their perceptions of these problems uh, than if you uh, if they're unaffiliated. So, I mean, that's a huge problem, I think, to wrestle with. And and so those, I think the stuff, the sort of racial and religious and partisan divides and the way that those intertwine, uh, this kind of new tribalism is the thing that worries me the most, I think. Um, on the other hand, you know, I do think there are um, some ways, I mean, I would say like, you know, there there are, I wrote about this in the book, I mean, if churches would take the project up, um, they are probably the, the um, institution that is best position to help us wrestle with some of these uh, divides. you know there are more churches than post offices still uh, in this country. you know they're in every little hamlet in the country. Um, and you know if they could sort of get uh, you know so they're providing ways for people to talk to each other across lines of race and class uh, and background, um, that would be you know huge. I think it would be huge, for Christianity in the country. It would be huge for uh, democracy in the country. And there's some signs that some of that is happening, particularly among younger uh, pastors and younger um, uh, leaders in the country.
0: Robert, thanks for spending some time talking with me. I'll, I want to have you back on to keep parsing the data and the statistics for us, because you guys do an amazing job at PRI of, of, of collecting this, disseminating it, interpreting it. So thank you for your work.
1: Oh, uh, well, I really, really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, no, I'd be happy to be on any time. Thanks so much. so much. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to give and take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them, share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, Hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness. If you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds go to iTunes and write a review and give a give a rating to the podcast. It really really helps especially as things are getting off the ground. And please do check out the work of Robert Jones. You can find links to most of it at prri.org. Thanks again for listening and until next time, fare the web.